Good morning and welcome to the Indoor Environments Global Research to Action Show. Uh, I'm your co-host, Bob Krell. I'm the publisher and founder of Healthy Indoors Magazine. And joining me as my co-host is Donald Weeks. He is the president of the IEQGA, the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, coming to us live from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Hey, Don. Hey, how are you today? Uh, you know, it's it's another great day here in Syracuse. It's actually sunny and it's not raining, so I feel good about that. There you go. So um, today's show uh, is uh, another great one. Uh, you know, it's our second installment of our new series for uh, ISIAC and IEQGA. So we're really excited to have as our guest today, uh, Dr. David Krause. He's the founder and principal toxicologist for Healthcare Consulting and Contracting, HC3, in Tallahassee, Florida. He's a certified industrial hygienist and research received his doctorate in environmental and occupational health and master's of science in public health from the University of South Florida. For over 25 years, he has practiced environmental science and public health, focusing on toxicology, occupational health, industrial hygiene, indoor air quality, exposure to microbes and chemicals in homes, schools, office buildings, and healthcare facilities. Uh, from 2008 to 2011, Dr. Krause was the state toxic toxicologist for Florida Department of Health, and he led statewide response efforts on community cancer clusters, corrosive drywall in homes, and the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So that's that's a whole bunch of stuff. So welcome, David Krause. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for inviting me today. Um, this is, uh, you know, the topic of today's show um, really is kind of a long title, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the crux to this is there's potentially issues in your potable water systems that you're receiving from uh, your municipalities that might be adversely affecting your indoor environment and ultimately your health, right? That's certainly the case. <laughs> you know, we, we've focused for many years on the, the impact of outdoor air, on indoor air, on building materials, on the indoor air and the environments and exposures people have. Um, we often forget uh, or don't place this adequate importance on the uh, water quality. And what comes in with that water can certainly affect people as much, if not more, than the uh, contaminants and agents present in the air and, and being emitted from building materials. I mean, one of, one of the things I think um, that the audience may not know is, you know, because some people may not be familiar with you. Obviously, we've known each other for years. Don's known you for years because you, you've been a kind of a fixture in the IEQ industry. Uh, but for a global audience, some people might not be familiar with you. H how did you get involved? You know, what, what got your interest in, to be involved in public health and indoor air quality and industrial hygiene? You know, how, how did you get here? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I've been asked that a few times by my, my employees and by... Uh, my kids. Um, actually, it, uh, my first exposure to public health and environmental health came uh, when I was an officer in the U.S. Army. I was stationed in uh, northern Germany in uh, a town called Flensburg and was um, responsible for the health and safety of all of my soldiers. And uh, as, a, as a lieutenant, was given responsibility for the mess hall and the, the barracks and for the, uh, the, even the battlefield that we would have to fight on. And you realize that in most wars, um, on any given day, you had more soldiers uh, unavailable or out from combat due to disease or foodborne illness than you did from combat injuries. So it became a, a very important aspect of uh, just daily life uh, on an army base or in the military. And actually, I got a, a chance to work with epidemiologists um, in, in uh, they were studying uh, why did certain uh, occupational specialties such as um, artillerymen, forward observers, why did they have a higher incidence rate of injuries to their uh, legs, uh, sprained ankles, broken ankles. Um, and so that was some of my first exposures to what turns out to be the field of public health. So the follow-up, of course, I have to that is, um, what are you most widely known for now in, in uh, the, the global stage? I know the answer, but I, I'd like to have you answer it. Uh, well, these days it's probably related to um, waterborne pathogens and Legionnaire's disease. Uh, since I was a uh, state toxicologist uh, working with the Florida Department of Health, uh, I and my colleagues recognized that the current guidelines certainly weren't uh, 
working, weren't uh, sufficient, and needed to be improved. Um, recognized the need for uh, better training and better protocols uh, and, and bringing the, the, the actions of that uh, to a more modern state of, of, of response and, and remediation. Um, but, you know, in prior days, it, uh, I dealt with the Chinese drywall or the corrosive drywall that was being imported. Uh, prior to that, um, some people may have heard some of the work I did uh, uh, early on with candles and candle soot uh, that uh, became the subject of the consumer product uh, recalls and uh, issues related to lead and soot from candles. So there's been a, a few emerging issues I've gotten a chance to, uh, to work on. So Dave, uh, going back some, when did you first become interested in Legionnaire's disease? And, and if, 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 if you could kind of give us uh, maybe an example of something that you did back in the days uh, that, that uh, led to your interest in Legionnaire. Um, well, you know, back uh, early in my career, I was with the uh, Florida Department of Health as the industrial hygienist. So I, I would be uh, sent out to do field investigations of outbreaks of various uh, types, and, uh, and Legionnaires was one of them. Uh, I was certainly uh, asked to investigate uh, before it was commonplace to do a proactive uh, investigation of sources uh, before you had any cases of disease, and recognize that we didn't have any, any reliable guidance or recommendations on how to interpret values. Um, but uh, my, my major efforts became uh, uh, came to me when I was working with the Florida Department of Health as a state toxicologist and saw the dearth of guidance and training that was out there and that the rates were rapidly rising. Uh, during that, uh, soon after that period, um, 2012, the um, rates of Legionnaire's disease certainly started to rise again as they had in 2002, 2003, um, and to where we've, we've seen over the past 15, 16 years, uh, you know, over 600% increase in uh, rates of disease. So whatever we're doing isn't working. And so I figured that's something we should be working on as uh, industrial hygienists and public health officials to improve what we're, uh, how we're trying to prevent and, and remedy this, uh, this source of disease. And in these outbreaks that you've uh, investigated, what was the impact on the indoor environment? Well, uh, it can be pretty severe. I mean, Legionnaire's disease, a lot of people um, don't realize that, the, the, that this kills people. This causes fatalities. Uh, most indoor air pollutants we deal with, um, you know, rarely, if ever, uh, are attributable to fatalities. But um, with Legionnaire's, a, a non-healthcare setting, a, a one in 10 case uh, mortality rate is, is common. And uh, if it's a healthcare setting or such as a nursing home or a hospital, one in four uh, people who contract the disease often pass from it. So that's that's serious work, um, uh, outcomes, and uh, it often hospitalizes people. Uh, the indoor environments, what we find is we don't have a way of, of surveilling the indoor environment, measuring this in the air. So we have to take that second step and go and look for sources and monitor for uh, possible sources of exposure. So you mentioned that uh, you really can't measure this in the air. Could you give us a little description as to why that is the case? Yeah, um, I would say we probably know less about that than others. Uh, but what we believe is happening is that the organism um, is damaged or made non-viable non or non-culturable, at least, um, by the sample collection methodologies we have available to us. So. Um, it desiccates pretty quickly uh, dry, when it dries out on the plate or in the air. Um, it's believed to not to be able to grow on that plate, and therefore we can't see it in the current analyses. So that's probably the most uh, uh, most likely explanation of why air sampling for Legionella uh, rarely gives us reliable results. You can sometimes detect it if you're near a source, um, but the, the methodologies we have, the plates, um, the number of samples that have to be collected and probably the transient periodic episodic nature. It's not constantly in the air. Um, you have to kind of have to catch it out of the air like a cloud. Um, it's not a very reliable method to find it. You're, you're better off looking at the possible sources. 
But I mean, that's the case with, with trying to catch airborne bacteria in general, right? I mean, it's a, air sampling for bacteria is always kind of hit and miss and sketchy. Yeah, yeah. Um, we could certainly do with a much better uh, surveillance or, or monitoring methodology. Um, until that comes along, until that uh, uh, is validated, then what we have to rely upon is uh, the source, looking at the sources where we know it grows and amplifies. And when it does that, um, then we can actually take steps to prevent it. Because even if you catch it in the air, even if you could detect it in the air, finding where the source is to remediate it and, and mitigate its uh, risk um, still would require source sampling. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes total sense because you find it in the air. Well, you're taking a general shotgun sample. So now where where is it coming from? Right. It's great. It's in. I mean, I guess that would maybe give you a better idea of the actual exposure, but not necessarily, right? Because people are exposed numerous ways, right? It's usually when water's aerosolized. That's usually the case. That's that's what we believe. The, the primary source of exposure that causes disease, which is Legionnaire's disease, uh, is, a, is a type of pneumonia. Um, and we, we contract it not by drinking the water, but by inhaling the water. So um, that that's the the main pathway and the main disease that uh, we, we believe is related to this. So David, uh, I had an opportunity uh, a couple of years ago to, to India. And before I went, I was asked, uh, you know, what, what I asked them, did some research on Legionella and, and India. And it was interesting to me to find that they had, although they had hundreds of thousands of cases of uh, pneumonia of various types, they, they only reported one, one case, one case a year of Legionella. I was wondering if, if, if that's the case. I mean, we're kind of uh, somewhat uh, North American centric here. Is it, is, it, is it something different in other parts of the world, at least in your, your knowledge or experience? Yeah, I, I, I kind of uh, describe Legionnaire's disease as a first world problem, mm -hmm. not a third world problem. Uh, we, we have created uh, in, indoor environments and equipment, uh, industries and materials. Um, that uh, favor Legionella more so than other bacteria in the water. We've created a synthetic uh, artificial environment in uh, hot water. So this is a problem of indoor plumbing, uh, hot water, potable water, um, municipal water supplies, treated water in which we've removed the competing organisms. Um, we have uh, warm the water and then we recirculate that water and then we try to save that water and um, I, I think this is a problem that man has created uh, that isn't probably much of a problem in nature uh, but turns out uh, we this organism has uh, found a nice safe environment and uh, also happens to cause disease in humans so yeah, this is one in which we've, uh, in, in many ways, brought upon ourselves. So I wanted to point out, um, those of you watching the show live now, if you're on the uh, Healthy Indoors Online Global Community, we do have a uh, chat area there, and you're welcome to uh, pose some questions for Dr. Krause. Uh, we'd be happy to bring those up on the show live or even uh, address those afterwards. So uh, by all means, uh, take, it, take your opportunity to do that. I cut you off, didn't I, Don? No, no, go for it. Uh, that, but he did that. Uh, basically, I wanted to ask uh, David about whether there are other waterborne pathogens that uh, he has found that uh, impact the indoor environment. Well, um, there's a number. I mean, there are many other bacteria, such as uh, including Pseudomonas. Uh, there's some fungi that uh, are transmitted via waterborne fruits. Um, so there's with the the recent uh, mandate by uh, CMS, the Centers for Medicare Medicaid Services, that uh, hospitals and healthcare settings must control uh, and prevent waterborne uh, infections, uh, I think that will prompt more organizations to look. The more we look, the more we're likely to find. Um, but there's a number of bacteria that can be transmitted uh, in through those pathways, and then. Um, something that is a, a bit of i say emerging as a recognized uh, waterborne pathogen are non-tuberculosis mycobacteria ntms and uh, 
uh, mycobacterium uh, avium complex is, is one example of that. And, and, and they often can grow in similar environments, very robust and resilient organisms that uh, can also cause disease and, and can amplify within water systems. Yeah, so these, these sort of things, um, you don't, we don't typically think of those indoor environmental issues. You know, I mean, they're considered, you know, the, these waterborne pathogens. Um, I would say, you know, most indoor environmental practitioners, you know, don't necessarily look at those as, you know, bonafide IAQ or IEQ type issues. Um, so what you're suggesting is that really we're missing the boat on that a little. Well, I think we've been blind to that as a source. For, for decades because we, we haven't been required to test for it. It's not required to be tested under the Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, and, you know, the conditions that allow it to grow, all of these things to amplify within building water systems and sometimes within industrial water systems. That's, that's certainly been uh, a, a window into the conditions and the, and the risks of this when we're dealing with um, uh, fluids that are used for cutting or for cooling inside of industrial plants. Mm -hmm. uh, as an industrial hygienist, I've had the opportunity to, to investigate some of these. And the, um, the amount of, of uh, contaminants, bacteria, uh, NTMs that are in some of these cutting fluids that are recirculated over and over and over um, can be astonishing. Well, they're not changed very often either. A lot of those fluids, they're, they, they're maintained, they're cooling fluids, so they're maintained at warm temperatures, right? Because they're, they're, they're part of their deal is to actually transfer heat away from whatever the processes they're, they're working with. Yeah, and cutting fluids are just constantly being, you know, have debris and, and nutrients added into them. There's heat. Um, so those have certainly added uh, to my uh, experience and seeing you know, how those things can be aerosolized uh, and inhaled by workers. Uh, so yeah, industrial environments, uh, non-traditional, non-typical, uh, atypical uh, from healthcare or residential environments certainly recognize uh, uh, a certain risk there. And then when somebody contra is contract, you know, contracts one of these uh, diseases, which usually is respiratory, um, then the question is, where do they get it? And then that's often led to us looking, you know, looking at homes, looking at um, you know, uh, transportation or um, hotels and resorts. And then we realize these things are everywhere, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, dose does the, does make the poison and the, the infectious dose uh, is, is needed. But um, we realize that these are not uncommon. We just haven't been looking for them for a long time. So I have to go back to what you mentioned a moment ago um, that, testing for Legionella is actually not part of the Safe Water Act? Correct. Uh, see, so th this is something that I bet many people are not aware of. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I find it alarming that, that we're not testing for that. So, Yeah, it's it's a bit of a conundrum. They're, they are supposed to control it, but they it, it's based upon treatment technology. So uh, they believe, and this, you know, this is often stated in the Federal Register, we believe that if we treat it this certain way, you know, have adequate disinfectant levels and at the right pH and uh, the right temperatures that uh, this will be controlled. But currently under the Safe Drinking Water Act, uh, there is no requirement for the municipal water supply to test uh, for Legionella uh, or, uh, you know, several others. So, um, you know, the, so then becomes the, well, it must be coming from the building. Well, I had to get in the building somehow. And uh, there's a number of studies. I think I gave a presentation recently on the, the data uh, at the American Industrial Hygiene Association on the last virtual conference, the frequency of finding Legionella in municipal water supplies. Uh, and it's pretty common. Uh, in, in investigations of outbreaks, uh, we've certainly found it. Uh, and in long-term surveillance, uh, you know, there's in Baltimore, we, we found Legionella in the incoming water 30% of the time, roughly. It's really troubling. 30% yeah. of the time you're finding it in the incoming water. Yeah. And, and, and in a few of those incidences, which were, you know, spaced apart by months, sometimes a, a three or four months, we would find Legionella at levels that would have prompted a building to be remediated if that had been detected during an outbreak. So not just incidental, you know, 
barely detectable one, two, five, but up to 40 colony forming units per mil of, of Legionella and in incoming water. And that's a bit of a shock to a lot of people that, you know, facilities can be seeded with this constantly, uh, or at least sporadically by the municipal water system. Yeah, so with concerns about airborne pathogens rising, obviously, what are we missing with regards to water pathogens uh, and human health? What are we, should we be looking as industrial hygienists or any other type of, uh, say, building owner or, uh, or maintenance company? What, what should we be looking for that we are missing at the moment? Well, uh, the current, uh, uh, I'll say, uh, directions and, and trend is to establish water management programs. Um, these are believed to be, uh, you know, they're, they're entirely new and, uh, recommendations from ASHRAE under the 188 standard to basically pay attention to and monitor to your building water systems to make sure they have adequate, adequate disinfectant, to, they're at the right temperatures, and they're periodically maintained or flushed to, uh, to, to keep them clean. Um, it's being adopted slowly. Uh, and under a lot of duress by a lot of facilities, but you know, it costs money and the outcome is tough to, uh, demonstrate, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that's going to be the biggest aspect is how do you implement these programs for facilities that don't think they have a problem? Well, a lot of cases when I, when I you know, we did these types of uh, water management plans and pro programs, a lot of people said, well, when does it all end? When does it stop? When, <laughs> Never. When can but yeah, and then that's what we pretty much told them. But, you know, they were like, well, you know, how, how much testing should we do? Should we be testing monthly? Should we be testing quarterly? Should we be testing, you know, every day? And and, and, and those questions are not real clear. I mean, it, you mentioned the ASHRAE standard, and, and it's certainly a, a decent and good standard. We'll, we'll all agree with that. But it doesn't really tell you what you're supposed to do to kind of maintain your systems. And no, so I, maybe you want to, maybe you want to comment on that a little bit. Well, I'll, I'll uh, tout the horn of uh, the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Uh, I, I was a member of the, the, the group that prepared and edited the first guidance back in 2015. We saw that the ASHRAE standard was, for many reasons, um, not providing that type of detailed guidance and granularity on how and when to sample or to assess. So um, the, the 2015 AIHA guidelines, especially Chapter 3, uh, on assessing building water systems for Legionella sources is, is a pretty good source to start with. Uh, you know, I think we we put out there, you know, starting with quarterly monitoring is a good place to start for most buildings. And then adjusting that based upon the data that you collect. You may be able to uh, increase the, the time between monitoring or you may be able to, may need to increase, uh, in, increase the frequency of testing. Um, how, you know, how and where to sample most people don't even know where to start with that. So we provided some some beginning guidance on you know how that can and should be done. Um, and but it is important for the team to uh, adjust course based upon their findings. Right. Well, that's important. And and I guess the question becomes: in many cases, you know, they're looking for a negative. It's it's it, you know it's part of the problem of of, right. of industrial hygiene. You're always looking for a negative rather than oh, I found something. What happens when they do find something? What are they, you know, in, in terms of the, the, particularly the building owner or maintenance company, what are they supposed to do? What, what's the next steps? Well, the one for sure thing we say is don't ignore it. That's, mm -hmm. a, <laughs> that's a, a, a good way to get into trouble and have uh, things backfire on you. Um, but overreacting is also not good. Uh, wasting of time and resources for a transient concentration or detection uh, certainly isn't uh, uh, desired either. So, um, you know, we, we provided some guidance on, you know, watchful waiting, uh, taking action early. So that's one of the things that, um, that we've done that AIHA has provided. Uh, and most recently, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has actually published uh, some guidance with interpretive uh, values and, and guidance on actions that should go on. So I think we're gaining more confidence in what you should do when you detect uh, the thing you're looking for and, you know, how you can take actions to um, reduce the risk. Uh, 
there's no such thing as zero risk. There's no such thing as zero detection. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's, uh, there's no one right answer. The, the actions you may take in a cancer treatment ward or an ICU for a hospital uh, for a certain detectable level are going to be different from what you would uh, do if you were working, uh, you know, on an aircraft hangar or at a uh, prison or at a, you know, uh, an office building where the, the risks are different. Mm -hmm. So we have, we have a question uh, posed in the chat from our studio, uh, from our actually live audience. Uh, Jim Flores asks, uh, what is your opinion on the use of whole genome sequencing for Legionella versus PCR traditional culture? Yeah, great question. Great question. Uh, we've certainly enc encountered this in some of the outbreaks uh, that we dealt with. Um, and this is uh, an aspect in which essentially you're reading the DNA fingerprint of the organisms uh, that you're finding in the environmental samples from the water systems or cooling towers uh, and comparing it hopefully to isolates that have been uh, collected from patients, uh, from individuals who contracted the disease. Uh, it's not one or the other. You, you have to find the isolates. You have to grow it out first. So you're going to be doing culture testing there. Uh, PCR testing. Um, it's it's wrapped in all kind of problems and concerns. Um, one of the things is that it, it tends to detect both uh, live and dead, culturable and non-culturable, viable, non-viable uh, organisms. So in out of the same sample, you may get a million uh, cell equivalents uh, under PCR. But when you when you plate that out, you detect one CFU per mil. So vastly different uh, concentrations and interpretations. Um, PCR has a role, but when it comes to examining the organisms for the risk of disease, um, it's still it's still we still have to rely upon culture. So, um, you know, you, you've done extensive work over the years with AIHA and uh, the ACGIH, American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. I always have a hard time saying that fast, but it starts to roll off your tongue after a while. Um, and, you've, and you've worked with a bunch of other groups, too. So um, what are some what are some of the standards and guidelines, you know, all you know, additional ones that you've been working on over the years? And, uh, you know, uh, in particular, ones that you think would have a big impact on uh, how we uh, deal with our indoor environments, you know, for investigation and remediation purposes. Certainly, certainly. Well, um, a document that was published, uh, say, early on in my career, it's been a while ago now, the uh, ACGIH Bioaerosols Assessment and Control, I think it was published in 1999. Uh, I, I've been uh, asked to participate and invited to sit on the Bioaerosols Committee for ACGIH, in which we are, uh, I'm one of many, uh, trying to update that 20-plus-year-old document. Now, that was a foundational, great document that uh, when it was published, and it's still very uh, solid in its documentation and, and scientific guidance and even transitioning from uh, research to practice. But there's been a lot that's gone on since then, and we're trying to update that, uh, that text and reference uh, and that foundation uh, uh, even today. So uh, that one's going to take a little while, but uh, that, that's one that has been... Um, labor of love for many, including uh, Don Weeks. I know you're you're working on that with us as well. That's been a great uh, experience. Um, most recently, though, we, uh, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, um, put out the framework, the technical framework on Legionella, in which we have worked uh, in conjunction with the, the National Environmental Health Association and are trying to also engage with the uh, APIC Association for Professionals in Infection Control in which we're really laying out the fundamentals, the core competencies, competencies and principles that individuals should have when they're um, filling the roles of either a technician who's collecting samples for Legionella um, or a professional who is uh, designing uh, water management plans and programs or an environmental health professional who's, uh, or an industrial hygienist who's uh, conducting investigations of sources related to an outbreak. So it's not a credential, but it is laid out to provide uh, the information you would need or should have as a credentialed professional um, and maybe use someday as a uh, curriculum. 
Makes sense. Um, one thing I just wanted to bring up now, I, th I think it, it's germane, is uh, the uh, Healthy Buildings uh, America Conference coming up in November, uh, which of course is uh, part of the ongoing uh, series that uh, ISEAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, produces. Um, and uh, this year it's being hosted by Siri, the uh, Cleaning Industry Research, uh, Research Institute. It's in Honolulu, Hawaii from uh, November 9th to 11th. Um, it, and the focus this year is a little different. It's bridging the gap between research and practice, not unlike what we're trying to do here in the show. Um, this is uh, a unique event in that there will be academia, researchers, and people from that entire academic research community there. But all in addition, we uh, anticipate they'll be joined by a lot of practitioners from around the world uh, and have the opportunity to uh, share ideas and thoughts. So I think that's a great thing. You'll be there. You're, you're doing a pre-conference workshop, right? I am. I am. Um, Don will be there. I'll be there. What, what else do you should, need? You should all be, you should all be uh, yeah, and the thing is you really should all be there. This is this is a great event. Uh, you can learn more at hb2021-america.org. Uh, that's where you can find out about it. Still plenty of time to register to attend. Um, so I hope to see you there. And yeah. I, I tell you, you know, I've been attending these conferences uh, since the late 90s. <laughs> um, You're that old? What? I'm that old. Uh, you know, I, I went there in high school. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could say that. I first one I went to was in 1993. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I remember the one in uh, Helsinki. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I met my wife, actually. <laughs> oh, well, a lot of good wow. things happened there. Um, you know, I, I met some uh, Danish fellows who had come out with a new methodology to detect mold. Um, so it is really a good way, and that you know, we we later uh, introduced that to the to the United States. So that is really a great opportunity where traditionally research and practitioners have been able to come together and uh, you know seed that information across the world. Yeah, it is a great uh, series of conferences, healthy buildings, as well as the indoor air, and that is our partner ISIAC that is uh, that is you know, the responsible party for that. So it, it would be remiss not to mention that that's who who's sponsoring these conferences. And uh, you know, we we I've 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 learned many different things over the years simply by paying attention at these conferences and not just enjoying uh, some fiendish uh, food and drink. I actually learned something, uh, and and using that back in the North America was was really a plus for most people. So anybody who's interested in being ahead of their peers, this is the place to go. Is to go to one of these healthy buildings conferences. So yeah, I, I've explained it to some folks. This is this is where the thought leaders come together and right. you know make some great cocktails yes exactly <laughs> um so i i hear what you said about the um um you know the uh, bioaerosols group thank you bioaerosols is, is one of the things that i think we really need to look at but going back to the aiha publications uh, that you've been involved with particularly on legionella uh, do you do you see where there may be uh, additional uh, need to update those, or are they in good shape at this point? Where where do we stand with regards to uh, the AI chase stuff? <laughs> Don, you 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 make me uh, you, you uh, remind me of the uh, current chair asking me. So when are we going to finish the update on the AIHA guideline? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that unfortunately is in my uh, my ball court uh, side of the court right now. And we are working diligently on uh, updating that guidelines. One of the tough parts with even writing the guideline in the beginning, uh, certainly uh, updating it now, is that the rate at which new information and new guidelines and, and new standards are coming out is uh, uh, challenging, to say mm -hmm. the least. Uh, by the time we think we've got everything ready, something else comes out that we now need to update it before we send it out. Um, so that is uh, currently on the uh, agenda and on the uh, on, on my to-do list, uh, but updating that guideline. And one of the things that we're adding in there uh, is, you know, people love tables uh, and they will debate them to ad nauseum. But one of the things we've done in here is uh, we've updated the table and it's, it's more harmonious with other guidelines, even the, the new um, CDC guidelines on interpretation of results. But we've added in a new recognition. It, previously, we talked about how do you, what actions do you take if you detect Legionella in potable water sources? Well, traditionally, we've always thought of that as being potable water in the um, fixtures within the building. 
Well, one of the things I've certainly learned is that we want to look at what's coming in the building. So what do you do if you're if you detect Legionella in the incoming water of the building? Some, something that hasn't transited or come through the building yet certainly isn't couldn't be a source of the building. Well, I can tell you the actions you can take are much more limited than if you think that source is within your own premise plumbing of your or water heaters of your building. So that's another one in which we've uh, added a little bit to the um, to the discussion and the recommendations and are you know, providing some guidance on reaching outside of your building, maybe back to your uh, city water system and letting them know your conundrum that you're receiving Legionella from them. We appreciate it if you'd stop and maybe send a little bit of more disinfectant uh, in the in the water lines. And sometimes they can and are able to uh, uh, comply with that request. I mean, one one of the things um, that I know is near and dear to you is you know it, it is trying to help get good information forward and you know and move things you know actually make substantial changes in a positive fashion in the industry. I know you've, you've always been, you know, he heavy on that. And what do you think the main responsibility of researchers and practitioners are to ensure that there's a good flow of uh, actionable, and, and the key word here, actionable information to and from both both groups? It's a lot of information out there. There's tons of research. There's tons of, tons of data out there, tons of studies being done. But how do we actually make that be something that's actionable, that gets taken into practice? And how do we let the information that's gleaned in the practitioner side in the field get back to the research community to maybe postulate new research projects yeah that's, that's a way long question but that's a way long question that's a that's a few textbooks right there um i i will say the first thing to solving a problem is to recognize you have one and that has always been one of the toughest things is to uh, take that information from academia and sometimes we do have that uh that snarky reply is it's a very academic point because it's maybe not relevant in the real world. Um, but we, we need to increase the knowledge base and the relevance of all who are practi practicing uh, in the field of public health or uh, workplace health uh, safety. Um, so that's, that's one thing is we need to find a way to make sure that we bring people up to current standards of information it often unfortunately means dispelling some myths and there's a handful of academic papers out there that are constantly cited that are have been proven demonstrably wrong they need to be redacted or retracted um so that's one thing is going back and fixing our old mistakes and and, and being able to own up and and, and recognize yeah, that's what we thought back in 2003 maybe we weren't right well things evolve i mean it, it, that's okay mm -hmm. that's that's you know that's like learning but people are still people are still hesitant to acknowledge that they may have said something or published something wrong so that's becoming more commonplace and usually re retractions of papers are are a bit scandalous uh, and we need to kind of remove that from the from the uh, discussion that, you know, something was, you know, we, we thought we knew it back then, but, you know, it turns out in hindsight might not have been the case. The other aspect is how do you get information from practitioners? And those practitioners may be, you know, folks like myself who are actually doing investigations and sample collection and interpretation, but also uh, water treatment suppliers and providers, uh, remediation firms. How do you gather that information and push that back into the academic side of things? And I think that's been the, uh, frankly, the more challenging and, and most difficult uh, upstream flow. I don't definitely call it upstream, but you know, um, sort you know, closing the loop. How do we take that information and, and push it back? Um, and there's still a lot of you know, separating the wheat from the chaff. A lot. Well, there's of not a good vehicle for doing that, though, right, David? I mean, currently, I mean, there really isn't a great vehicle. Conferences certainly can be a way, okay. um, but yeah, it's it's usually a one-way communication path, and okay. I think academia really needs to, um, you know, listen as much as they speak. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I'll put in a plug for our other partner, which is IEQGA, the Global Alliance, and this is a place where groups such as um, 
you know, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate and, and others can uh, work with, uh, with practitioners from AIHA or from ACGIH and now recently with IRCRC. So, I mean, basically we're starting to see uh, more interaction between the groups. And I think that's very, very important because it, it really hasn't been the, the case in the past. So uh, we need to foster that more. And I guess, David, the question I have for you on that is, is on a personal basis, what would you like to see uh, offered in the way of, of, of new uh, conferences, uh, webinars, uh, uh, other types of devices to in order to bridge that gap? Um, I, I think really conferences are great, but for folks who make a living every day, um, usually, you know, getting away for several days and then certainly the age of uh, COVID, uh, it's not even been an option for the past couple of years now. Um, but establishing reliable sources of continuing education that are palatable, that are engaging, that allow people to learn uh, new things and, and improve their knowledge on the basis. Um, I'll tell you, my my personal wish is that when credentials are made, when certifications or licensures are required and established, that we stop making the mistakes of the past and that we base those credentials and those licenses on knowledge. Um, now, everybody doesn't need to know everything about the, at Legionella to make a difference. Um, one of the things that we will, we did in the uh, framework or the, the framework, uh, technical framework for Legionella is we recognize there are different roles that people play and some uh, are much more technically in, involved. Some are, are uh, you know, writing guidelines, so, but you need people who are uh, able to collect good data and information in a safe and reliable way. And so I, I think really we're probably going to be seeing some type of credentials coming out. I'm not sure from who or if, if ever, but we do need to make it feasible for the, the customer, the, you know, the hospital administrator or the plant manager to be able to look at someone's business card or their website and know, okay, this person has basic competencies needed to do this. Because unfortunately in many investigations that I've done, uh, and, and some of them have been part of uh, litigation support or expert witness work. We find that the first um, environmental firm, the, lo the local guys or gals who are called out to investigate something, they got in over their head. Um, and often, you know, ex expended resources, sometimes gave poor advice, uh, sometimes um, sent people in the wrong direction and increased people's exposure to pathogens or, or chemical agents. So we, we do need that. In, in the past, the, the credential of certified industrial hygienist was, was fully recognized both by government and private agencies uh, as competent individuals. Uh, now, you don't have competency in everything. You know, I know some CIHs who are great in rocket fuels that I, I wouldn't want to take a bioaerosol sample and vice versa. So we all need to practice within our, within our own area of competence. And Legionnaire's disease, Legionella, and waterborne pathogens in general is an emerging area of practice. And uh, whether you're a CIH or uh, a water treatment company, I think we all have the potential to increase our knowledge and our ability to uh, help the clients and, and protect uh, public health and safety. We have another question from the audience. I want to flash that up. Um, so how about attracting more young professionals into the industry? What groups are primed to give information to educational institutions to tell young people about IAQ to get them interested? Yeah, how, how, that, that's that's a question that every organization is asking right now, right? All, all the silos in the indoor environmental arena. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not, uh, you know, I have some young uh, staff that work with me. Well, much not young anymore, but <laughs> we're young. Younger than you. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> younger than me, it seems. Um, and and uh, to a person, none of them had ever heard of industrial hygiene uh, when they were in their uh, uh, undergraduate studies. Um, most of the folks who work for me uh, have master's degrees. So it's not until they, they, they breach that level of, of uh, you know, a master's program that they even hear this field exists. So 
I think certainly getting out into the um, high schools and the four-year degree colleges um, is the first step to let people know that this field exists and is a growing field. The, the skills that we hold and possess are, are critical in providing um, good service and, and uh, ensuring a safe environment, both uh, for indoor air quality, uh, buildings, workplaces, healthcare settings. So, um, you know, I think really starting, starting at the point at which people are uh, gaining education, getting their basic education is, is where we need to go. Because that question is one of the questions we've been asking too here at the publication too. It just, it, it doesn't seem like there's a large influx of younger people coming into the into the space or the various silos because there's a whole bunch of different silos um and, and I, it could just be because we're just not seeing them they're not publicly you know they're not visible i mean I've, obviously there's got to be young younger professionals in the industry as evidenced by your crew but um uh, i'm just wondering are, it seems like we have been in the industry a long time, collectively, the three of us here. You know, we've, we, we've been here quite some time. And we came in as the younger people years and years ago, but there hasn't seemed to be that same transition. I don't see the same I, – I just, and it just could be me. I could be jaded, but I'm not seeing as much as I think we need to see. How do, how do we – you know, what can we do to help, you know, push it? Well, I, I think credentials or licensure or certifications have always driven uh, – the production pathway and process for that. So, um, you know, the need for industrial hygienists uh, and the, you know, the end goal of having a certified industrial hygienist uh, credential certainly uh, prompted that. Um, but I, I, I don't know the solution to that other than people need to know we exist first and then having a good um, uh, professional pathway to, for people to, to go down. People know how to, you know, there's a pathway to become an MD. There's mm -hmm. a pathway to become an engineer. Um, there's not a clear pathway to become a, a CIH. Uh, you know, there, and, and NIOSH has been rapidly, unfortunately, defunding and, and cutting budgets for its uh, educational resource centers. Um, so, you know, government funding for those uh, programs uh, does have an impact. It may take 10, 20 years for it to, to come to fruition, but uh, th those budget cuts certainly have uh, um, had an impact on where we are. But, I mean, I have noticed that AIHA over the past uh, year plus has done some rebranding, um, which, again, trying to, I think, trying to be more uh, more reflective of what a CIH actually does. You're both CIHs, and, and yes, you probably do do some work in occupational settings in the industrial environments, but that's that I, I suspect that's not your primary uh, areas of focus anymore. Yeah, and that's pretty much true for the profession. I mean, when I started uh, in the profession, uh, you know, 45 years ago or whatever it was, uh, I, I do remember, but it just, you know, it's 45 years, okay? I just don't like to saying that. Uh, basically, uh, it was industrial. I mean, I went around and saw industrial facilities throughout the, uh, in that case, the United States for insurance companies. And uh, that kind of, uh, of market has, has completely dried up. Insurance companies don't employ that many industrial hygienists anymore. But uh, I think that the key to it is really is, is more of a conversion. You know, you, you, we, we, each one of us probably started out and thinking we were going to be something else other than what we became. And, you know, and, 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 and now, now you, you still have that opportunity if you, if you come out of school and you're a mechanical engineer, if you come out of school and you're public health uh, masters, or if you come out of school and, and, and you're, you're a, bio, a biological uh, student, biology student, you have an opportunity to become an industrial hygienist. It just isn't necessarily being offered as much as it was back in the, back in the day. For David, you're kind of a walking contradiction in the sense you're a CIH and a PhD. And so I was wondering what, what prompted you to go, be, you know, not only for going for the CIH, but what prompted you to go for the PhD? Well, I, I kind of went through this entire thing backwards. Uh, you know, I, I started practicing public health uh, after I, I completed my bachelor's in biology and, and was in the, in the army for uh, several years. Mm -hmm. um, and this, the jobs that I had in the service, uh, both working with troops and, and health and safety in the, uh, in the troops, but also my primary job was with special weapons 
and we wanted to make you know kind of dangerous things and you want to make sure you weren't being exposed to the dangerous part of them so the skills that we learn to uh check for rocket fuels and and radionuclides and very dangerous chemicals uh, were the same ones that i needed to check check for carbon monoxide and for uh radon and and i'll say real hazards but typically you know less hazardous materials so that then prompted me to um, make the statement I've never thought I'd say. I wish I'd paid better attention in organic chemistry. <laughs> uh, and uh, luckily, my employer uh, really was supportive in me starting a master's program and then eventually uh, going on with my doctorate. Uh, so I, I was working in the field at the same time as I was um, uh, going pursuing my, uh, my my graduate degrees. And so that you know, once I finished the doctorate, then I said, you know, the, the credential of CIH is uh, I just basically been studying for, for the past six years. And so it uh, was a, a bit of a no brainer to go ahead and sit for that exam after completing the uh, the programs in environmental and, and occupational health. So uh, I don't necessarily recommend that pathway. Uh, makes you lose your hair um, <laughs> or at least turn gray. Um, but it, it certainly allowed me to be very hyper-focused and, and, and intentional in what I needed to learn and study uh, to stu uh, research aspects that were directly related to my, my work and, um, and emerging issues that I saw uh, happening in the field. So we have a few more comments coming up on the chat in the uh, global community. Uh, first one I truncated a little. It's uh, from Henry Slack, actually. How do we uh, reach out to smaller businesses? They are vulnerable to those selling bad services for cheap. <laughs> Think duck cleaning to solve every problem. <laughs> uh, big biz will hire competent people to avoid lawsuits. Uh, but what about small businesses? Well, greetings, Henry Slack. Uh, long time though here. Look, uh, voice from the past. Um, how do we reach out to smaller businesses? Again, I think that is more of a public communication, public health communications, uh, than it is to reach out to the small businesses themselves. Um, we, we need to protect consumer confidence and uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, Federal Trade Commission really need to target in and frankly do their jobs to make sure that people are not uh, being sold things that are fraudulent uh, or being sold things that are dangerous. Uh, there's there are established regulatory processes and, and, and requirements for uh, disinfecting agents and air cleaning devices, but unfortunately, many of them are just being bypassed. Uh, and if, even if they were being, you know, and if you are going through some scrutiny as a manufacturer, you tend to be a little bit more cautious in what you say and claim. Uh, I don't think there's a, 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 a one answer to everything but in general we do need government uh, agencies that have that responsibility to carry it out and to make sure that we're we're publicizing that to the general public yeah, we don't i mean i don't think we necessarily have as robust an architecture in place to protect the public and you know both commercial and residential consumers. You know, the FTC will come out if you make a false advertising claim, but the most they're going to do is fine a company. They can't take a product off the market. They can fine you for an instance of, you know, deceptive advertising, but these companies rebrand and come right I've back. Seen, I've seen consent decrees that made it, you know, $10,000 per day per item sold. That's yeah, but I, I, I can think back of a uh, an organization that made ozone generators for residential, <laughs> got fined a million dollars and rebranded under a different name, was out in six months selling yep. them again under a different label. Yep. Yeah, so. speaking of which, uh, <laughs> I, you were, uh, if I remember correctly, the chair of the I, uh, AIHA IEQ committee this past year in the age of, of COVID. Uh, obviously, you didn't expect that you would be chair of the committee during that period, but what did you see change in the industrial hygiene profession with regards to indoor air quality since this, this new advent, this new age of COVID? Um, well, by necessity, we had to change how we, uh, we, we created uh, and published uh, public health guidance. Normally the process that AIHA uses is very uh, and I'll be kind, deliberative. Um, 
<laughs> we we think and talk about things long before we uh, put it out there, and that and that has merit. Uh, that is needed for most instances. But if you're dealing with a, a global pandemic and people are scrambling for answers, we had to come up with a a more streamlined approach. And many of the the back to work safely guidance documents and um, engineering controls to reduce the risk of COVID uh, infection. Uh, prevention and cleaning and disinfection guidance was pulled together in frankly record-breaking time by a, a small army of industrial hygiene um, volunteers who did it all over Zoom, all over remote uh, meetings when uh, this would normally have been take, you know, done uh, you know, in-person meetings or uh, uh, over the course of several years. And we did these often in weeks or months uh, to get good solid guidance out there to answer questions that uh, many in the public and, and uh, you know, healthcare needed. Uh, we did have a, I did have another question that uh, came to me um, uh, offline here from uh, uh, Paul Onder uh, asking about should uh, the indoor air environment contain potable humidity, uh, potable water humidification to protect human health. Uh, and part of that comes back to questions about humidity control and COVID. Um, but also in many environments, uh, especially in the wintertime, it becomes very dry and drying out of the sinus cavities can, can lead to some issues. Um, that is, uh, humidification is a double-edged sword. Uh, just because it's potable water doesn't mean it's contaminant-free or pathogen-free. And um, humidification can certainly if, if cause problems uh, within HVAC systems if it's not steam humidification. So just because it's potable water doesn't mean it's inherently safe. So there needs to be additional treatment and monitoring to make sure it's, it's done properly. Elaborate uh, why steam uh, is your preferred choice there. Yeah, uh, well, steam technically is more challenging because now you have uh, precipitation of calcium and other materials. So you often have to treat that water before, but the heat of steam will kill, make non-viable or non-infectious uh, waterborne pathogens that may be in that water. Uh, whereas if it's just a spray mist of water within the HVAC system or within the environment, the bacteria can uh, still be infectious and certainly uh, in rare instances, but sometimes has been associated with the disease. So steam humidification uh, overcomes the bacteria issue, but there are technical and engineering challenges for that. We're, we're getting to that point in time where, um, you know, we're almost at the end of the program. So I guess we'll give you an opportunity, David, to uh, give some final thoughts, um, you know, on uh, on how maybe we can, you know, we should be moving forward here and taking this opportunity, you know, with a, a greater awareness to indoor environments probably coming through the pandemic and, you know, what, what you'd like to see going forward. Well, uh, we spend over 95% of our time in indoor environments of one sort or another. Most of them are rarely or lightly regulated or assessed. Um, OSHA is a paper tiger. Um, they've been defunded over the past few decades. Uh, and we, while they have published many uh, threshold limits and requirements, um, we can't expect OSHA to come and save the day. Um, industrial hygienists and remediation contractors, uh, academics, uh, those are the voices that are being heard now. And I think that we need to, uh, you know, step up and ensure that we're putting out good, reliable, actionable information. And part of that is going to be the need to retract um, or, you know, go back on previous information and dispel some myths and, and, and improve the information that's out there. I think well put. It's it's certainly um, you know we need to take the opportunity and do this. And I think uh, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your workday to be here during business hours and uh, join us on the show. Um, I just wanted to remind everyone that uh, this broadcast, the uh, Indoor Environments Global Research to Action, is a joint uh, production of ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, and the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance. Both these organizations came together to create this program, and uh, it's a great thing. It's uh, We're really excited to be here. This is our second uh, installment, and uh, we have more coming. You know, every month we'll be here. 
I just wanted to remind uh, that we also, as part of the IQGA, we sponsored this, but we also sponsored it through one of our members, which is AIHA, American Industrial Hygiene Association. And we really appreciate their support in uh, putting this show together and uh, getting us David Krause to, to speak to us. And uh, I think it was, uh, it was a great show. And if you, you, if you are available next uh, month in August, uh, there'll be an ISIAC representative that uh, I have not as yet um, got full information, but it will be about the ventilation and ventilation in the age of, of COVID most likely. So please join us again in, in a month. And uh, Bob, if you want to wrap it up. Yeah, it should be a great program. We're looking forward to that as well. And of course, uh, again, another reminder on the Healthy Buildings America 2021 conference, bridging the gap between research and practice, which again is what the uh, whole uh, basis of our uh, program is here. Um, this November 9 through 11 in Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, a great event. We're all going to be there. All three of us will be there. And uh, we hope to see uh, all of you there as well so we to a bar and uh, have a nice drink uh, yeah, yeah i mean actually instead of doing it virtually we might actually be able to sit at the bar and have a drink i I'm i, I may have that. forgotten how to do that i don't <laughs> believe so but anyway uh david always a pleasure uh to speak with you uh don again thanks so very much uh for your time here and uh the your efforts co-hosting. So until uh, next month, uh, we'll see you soon. Uh, again, indoor environments, global research to action. Have a great month. <laughs>